morning. So for Teisho today, I thought we would talk a little bit about vowels, um, specifically uh, what it means to become a Buddhist. Um, in, a, in about a month and a half, we'll be having our first Jukai ceremony here since I've been here. And Jukai is taking or receiving the precepts of, uh, of Buddhism. Um, and you could say that this ceremony is the closest thing that we have in Zen, um, in our lineage, and in actually in most Buddhist traditions, it's the closest thing to initiation ceremony. It's the closest thing that we have to that demarks a point in time where somebody says, well, I'm now officially a Buddhist. So um, I thought I'd talk a little bit about that today. Before I do, of course, uh, I want to say that on one level, there is um, this word Buddhism or becoming a Buddhist is, is kind of a, a made-up term um, in the sense that when during the Buddhist time, Buddha, there was no such thing as Buddhism. It was, it was called the Dharma. And so Buddhism is, a, a, as far as I understand it, it came more from the British. You know, they had to call it something. Other, you know, Buddha, well, okay, Buddhism. Um, everything is an ism. Um, when somebody goes through this ceremony of Jukai, um, you could say that they are officially becoming a Buddhist, or you could also say that just like any relationship, when it's sort of concretized through a commitment ceremony or marriage ceremony, um, it's an affirmation of what is already present in, in somebody. So it's not necessarily something new. It's more of um, something that already exists. So to guide us today, I thought in this talk, um, I thought I would pull from <clears throat> an article by um, Trungpa, Chogyo Trungpa Rinpoche, who is a very well-known uh, teacher. He died in 1987. Uh, he was a Tibetan Buddhist teacher that came to the United States and had quite a big following. And there's a lot of controversy around him, uh, just to put that on the record, that I'm aware of that. But at the same time, his writings are very clear and... Um, his, I think one of his most famous books is called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, which I highly rec recommend for everybody. So this article is from uh, a, a long time ago, back in the 90s. I think it was published in 1991, first in 1991, in a magazine called Shambhala Sun, which is now called The Lion's Roar, or Lion's Roar. And while... It's Tibetan Buddhism, and that magazine is geared more towards Tibetan Buddhism. It, it's nonetheless relevant for us as Zen practitioners. <clears throat> so this is called, the article is called The Decision to Become a Buddhist. And so what I'll do is just read some passages from it and, and comment. So he begins by saying this. 
He says, in the Buddhist tradition, the purpose of taking refuge is to awaken from confusion and associate oneself with wakefulness. Taking refuge is a matter of commitment and acceptance, and at the same time, of openness and freedom. By taking the refuge vow, we commit ourselves to freedom. So, so uh, for people that are not familiar, this word taking refuge, uh, refuge um, this refers to uh, the three refuges, which are Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. They're also called the three treasures. And a big part of the ceremony is, uh, in some traditions, they say going for refuge or taking refuge. And we'll get into that word a little bit more. Uh, but those are the three refuges, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So he says, by taking the refuge vow, we commit ourselves to freedom. <clears throat> so, so right off the bat here, Trungpa sets, uh, sets us on the path, so to speak. He orients us to what it is to become a Buddhist, which is uh, orienting ourselves working towards and beginning to walk this path of freedom, waking up. But even short of becoming a Buddhist officially, you could say that when we sit zazen, every time we sit down on the cushion, what we're doing is orienting ourselves towards that same freedom. So, and, and I think this is pretty um, common that each one of us, on some level, if we examine ourselves close enough, we feel imprisoned in some way. A prison of our own um, ego. Imprisoned, uh, imprisoned by our own limited sense of self. And as we become more and more versed in practice, we recognize that that imprisonment is our own making. That we are uh, both the prisoner and the prison guard. So he goes on. He says, everything in one's life experience concerning spirituality or anything else is purely a matter of shopping. We have allegiance to, quote, that and allegiance to, quote, this. There are hundreds of millions of choices involved in our lives particularly in regard to our sense of discipline, our ethics, and our spiritual path. People are very confused in this chaotic world about what is really the right thing to do. There are all kinds of rationales taken from all kinds of traditions and philosophies. We may try to combine all of them together. Sometimes they conflict. Sometimes they work together harmoniously. But we are constantly shopping. And that is actually the basic problem. So, uh, of course, this is, this is true in our, uh, more and more so in our consumer-based society. Always on, the sh always on the go, on the hunt for something. And, um, you know, is one thing we can do as practitioners is, is examine how we constantly shop in terms of our practice. One way that I found that practitioners, Zen practitioners shop is through voracious reading. 
and uh, I, I don't want to be misunderstood. Um, I, I have nothing against reading. In fact, I do a lot of, a lot of it myself. But um, sometimes we can read so much, we can get so involved in all kinds of different, what different teachers say, that it can become um, a constant uh, way that we never settle inside of ourselves. We never know what we think because we are, have so many different voices in our head from all the author's ideas and opinions about things that we really never give our own voice a chance to surface. So, so by reading constantly, um, we're kind of displacing our own uh, abilities in a sense. So he says, it's not so much that there is something wrong with the traditions that exist around us. The difficulty is more our own personal conflict arising from wanting to have and to be the best. When we take refuge, we give up some sense of seeing ourselves as the good citizen or as the hero of a success story. So this is this is true. I, I think it's really painful to see um, how people torture themselves with being the best, trying to be the best at something, or at least trying not to to be seen as failures. Um, how much we get caught up in having to do things right. Uh, the, the 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 flip side of that. Is though is seeing how people uh, free themselves from that. It's wonderful to see uh, how we can go from being so. This was my big problem. I, I felt so self conscious when I began practice. I was so self conscious. I was so consumed with doing things right, um, and it took many, many, many years to to stop having that be my dominant um, underlying. Uh, thread of, of always being concerned about doing things right. So it's wonderful to see when people wake up from that and stop uh, draining their energy with that. We stop seeing ourselves as a movie character or a book character. As he says, what does he say? He says, as the good citizen or, or of a success story. It's actually not always just a success story. Some some of us actually, it's the opposite. Some of us see ourselves constantly as a, as more of a, uh, like a tragic character, right? More involved in a tragedy than a, than a, than a heroic journey. But there's there actually are two two sides of the same coin, which is the which is the coin of self partiality, being consumed with a sense of self. And so one of the things we can look at in our practice is how many labels we have for ourselves. Um, and so when we take up the path of practice, what we're actually doing is we're, we're giving up those labels. We are giving up seeing ourselves and others in any kind of permanent light. We're freeing ourselves. So he says, he says, we might have to give up our past. We might have to give up our potential future. 
By taking this particular vow, we end our shopping in the spiritual supermarket. We decide to stick to a particular brand. We choose to stick to a particular staple diet and flourish on it. When I read that, I, I just love that, this image. That we stop our shopping. We end becoming a Buddhist. We end our shopping. So, so of course, this can bring up a lot of fear for people. Committing to a path can bring up a lot of concern about what we're giving up when we stop shopping. Because a lot of the times, on some subtle level, what we do is we are holding out for something better. I hear this a lot with young people. Um, they'll say something like to one, one, one young person to another, um, what are you doing on Saturday night? You want to get together? And the other person says something like, well, can I get back to you? I'm waiting to see what else comes along. You know, it's, 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 it's a very strange thing. But it's like this holding off. I, I want to make sure, I want to keep all my options open until the very last minute. And this is something that we should examine if we are doing in our practice as well. Holding off for something better. And we can do this in many different ways. We can hold off in many different ways. One of the ways we do it is when we sit down to Zazen, we can spend a lot of time. It's like we sit down and we have this perfect condition. It's silent. It's still. And it's, it, in some ways, it's the perfect conditions to think. We can just sit down and think. Because we're not doing anything else. And so we have to examine whether or not we're making that choice to pursue thinking. And what, ha- what happens often is, uh, in the mind, at least I notice this in myself, is the trade-off. Okay, well, you know, I've got plenty of time to practice. But this thing that I'm thinking about is really important to attend to. So we trade off. We, we hold off. We wait. I'll practice later. I've got to solve this problem that's in my head right now. So many people want to keep their options open just in case. Not quite committing to something. Not quite committing. For example, you know, we may say to ourselves, I want to take up a healthier lifestyle. So I'm going to, I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to quit drinking or something. Except on Saturdays, right? Or except after I've had a hard day at work. Um, but there's, there's a big problem with that. Because unless we're ready to give something up or take something up completely, there's always going to be, we're always going to hold some, something in reserve, a card up our sleeve, a kind of an out an exit strategy. And when we hold something in reserve, we'll always suffer because there is still this thread, this tiny little filament of thread of identity to that particular thing that we're not willing to give up. That we're trying to leave behind. So 
Trungpa continues, he says, when we take refuge, we commit ourselves to the Buddhist path. This is not only a simple, but also extremely economical approach. This is really interesting how he puts this. Henceforth, he says, we will be on the particular path that we was strategized, designed, and well thought out 2,500 years ago by the Buddha and the followers of his teaching. There is all, already a pattern and a tradition. There is already a discipline. We no longer have to run after that person or to this person. We no longer have to compare our lifestyle with anybody else's. We take a definite vow to enter a discipline of choicelessness which saves a lot of money, a lot of energy, and lots and lots of superfluous thinking. I, I saw a lot of this in Asheville when I lived in Asheville. It's one of the reasons I couldn't live there. No, no offense to Asheville. I love it. I love it. But there was so much going on, so many spiritual traditions. It was unreal. Every night there were a uh, hundred different groups you could go to. And you, people would just come through the Zen Center, you know. Uh, and it was just one thing on this smorgasbord of spirituality that was offered. And it was very difficult because very few people settled into a practice. Because there was, it was like, yeah, I'll try a little of this and a little bit of that. And so this per, superfluous thinking, in a way, is what bogs down much of our energy People sometimes ask me why they don't have energy. Why, why is it that I'm not feeling energetic? Of course, there's lots of reasons, diet or, or whatever, exercise or all kinds of things. But one of the things that uh, diminishes our energy is how much time we spend uh, racked in decision-making, like sort of hemming and hawing about different things in our life, what, what to do. And believe it or not, it really does suck our physical energy. We're not aware, usually, of how much our brain power actually is, um, how much energy, physical energy, that does take. And so we can begin to see that in Zazen as we recognize how much energy we spend going in over the same loops of thought. So Trungpa goes on, he says, perhaps this approach may seem repressive. He's referring to choicelessness. When he said um, the discipline of choicelessness. Perhaps this approach may seem repressive, but it is really based on a sympathetic attitude towards our situation. To work on ourselves is really only possible when there are no sidetracks, no exits. Usually we tend to look for solutions from something new, something outside, a change in society or politics, a new diet, a new theory, or else we are always finding new things to blame our problems on, such as relationships, society, what have you. Working on oneself without such exits or sidetracks is the Buddhist path. By taking refuge... In some sense, we are becoming homeless refugees. Taking refuge does not mean saying that we are helpless and then handing all our problems over to someone or something else. So, 
um, this is true. This is, this is one of the things that differentiates the Buddhist path from other traditions, even, even Asian, other Asian traditions, especially guru-based traditions. Um, we are not handing over our power to somebody else. But in fact, what we're doing is being reminded constantly. We're being thrown back onto our own two feet. Um, the role of a teacher in Buddhism is not a guru. It's, it's simply somebody who has walked the path ahead of us. And so they just see the pitfalls and say, watch out for this or look out for that. But they can't solve one's problems And, of course, there's no concept of God or a savior in Buddhism at all. But what I have seen is that sometimes instead of having a God, because we don't have that in Buddhism, what we do instead, in, especially in this type of Zen that we practice, the, the, what we do instead is we unwittingly turn... Um, the concept of enlightenment into a kind of God. It's outside of us. It's somewhere out there to, to recognize, to get closer to. And so enlightenment becomes this savior for us if we're not careful. It becomes this like pie in the sky type of thing. So we have to be careful about not turning enlightenment into a thing because it's not. So he says, he says, there will be no refugee rations, nor all kinds of security and dedicated help. The point of becoming a refugee is to give up our attachment to basic security. We have to give up our sense of home ground, which is illusory anyway. We might have a sense of home ground as where we were born and the way we look, but we actually, but we don't actually have any home, fundamentally speaking. There is actually no solid basis of security in one's life. And because we don't have any home ground, we are lost souls, so to speak. Basically, we are completely lost and confused, in some sense, pathetic. And then he says something I think is really true. Uh, I really love this part. He says, these are the particular problems that provide the reference point from which we build the sense of becoming a Buddhist. Relating to being lost and confused, we are more open. We begin to see that in seeking security, we can't grasp on to anything. Everything continually washes out and becomes shaky. This particular journey, he says, is like that of the first settlers. I suppose he's referring to the first settlers in the United States, the pioneers. We have, he says, we have come to no man's land and have not been provided with anything at all. We are here and we have to make everything with our own bare hands. We are in our own way pioneers, each in a historic each is a historical person on his own journey. It is an individual pioneership of building spiritual ground. Everything has to be made and produced by us. No one 
is going to throw us little chocolate chips or console us with goodies. So when I read that, I, an immediate, immediate kind of reaction was, well, this is not the way of rugged individualism. That's one thing that we uh, want to distinguish. Um, this idea of I have to go at it alone um, in some sort of kind of uh, me against the world kind of energy. We do have a sangha, we do have teachers, we do have guides and people to practice with. Um, but they, we have, what we have to recognize is they can't give us anything. No one's going to give us anything. But the main reason is, is because we already have everything that we need. He says, if we adopt a prefabricated religion, <laughs> which is, isn't that a great term? If we adopt a prefabricated religion that tells us exactly the best way to do everything, it is as though that religion provides us a complete home with wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. We get completely spoiled. We don't have to put out any energy or effort. So our dedication and devotion have no fiber. We wind up complaining because... We didn't get the deluxe toilet tissue that we used to get. So at this point, rather than walking into a nicely prepared hotel or luxurious house, we start from the primitive level. We have to figure out how we're going to build our own city and how we're going to relate with our comrades who are doing the same thing. This is, to me, this is one of the hardest things about Zen practice even when compared to Vipassana or Tibetan practice, Zen practice does not give us a lot of prefabricated instructions. It just doesn't give us a lot to hold on to. This is why it's been called a smooth silver mountain, because there's really nowhere to get a foothold. And, and, and yet we do. We end up, we do get a foothold somehow. But there aren't a lot of furnishings. There aren't a lot. There isn't a lot of, to grasp onto. <clears throat> There's an old Chinese saying that says, um, "What comes in through the front gate is not the family treasure." What comes in through the front gate is not the family treasure. What this refers to is that what is easily given to us comes in through the front the front door, is not really where the gold is at. It's not really that valuable. When somebody gives us something, gives us instructions, so to speak, that's not really the, uh, where we're going to find the value in practice. Which really ties into this other saying, whatever is produced by the help of another will likely dissolve and perish. So in this sense, each one of us creates our own Buddhism. The author goes on. He says, so taking refuge is a landmark of becoming a Buddhist, a non-theist. You no longer have to make sacrifices in someone else's name, trying to get yourself saved or to earn redemption. You no longer have to push yourself overboard 
so that you will be smiled at by the guy who watches us, the old man with the beard. As far as Buddhists are concerned, the sky is blue and the grass is green in summer. Of course. As far as Buddhists are concerned, human beings are very important and they have never been condemned except by their own confusion, which is understandable. So this is, this is one of the three poisons. Um, confusion. Greed, anger, and ignorance, or confusion. So he says, he says it's understandable that we're confused. Um, I would add on to that and say it's not only understandable, but it's forgivable. It, we have to... I think one of the most underutilized practices in Zen is a practice of forgiveness. A practice of forgiveness for others, and, uh, for their confusion, and a practice of forgiveness for our confusion when we get it wrong. And one way we can practice forgiveness for ourselves is to not take ourselves so seriously. Not to bog ourselves down in that uh, serious sense of, of, of self. There, of course, is a time for seriousness, but, but taking ourselves lightly um, is also very important. So we have to distinguish when it's, when it's time to hold fast and be serious and when it's time to let go and, and be light with ourselves with others. Okay, so a few more minutes. Taking refuge in Buddha as an example, he says, taking refuge in the Dharma as the path, and taking refuge in the Sangha as companionship is a very clean cut, very definite, very precise, and very clear practice. People have done this for the past 2,500 years in the Buddhist tradition. By taking refuge, you receive that particular heritage into your own system. You join that particular wisdom that has existed for 2,500 years without interruption and without corruption. It is very direct and very simple. So he's talking about the importance of ceremony and physically manifesting that, um, what that does by doing ceremonies, people often ask, what's the point of ritual or ceremony in Zen? And one way, the way I like to look at it, is that it really takes our intentions in our life, what we intend, what we would like, and it concretizes them. It brings them into physical form. You know, when we place our hands palm to palm, we place them in gratitude or in thankfulness or out of respect. So it's a real way of physically manifesting what's inside of us because otherwise up inside of our head it's all very murky i mean we examine if we examine our thoughts we find that they're muddy they're murky they have no physical existence of course and so of what we're doing when we do a ceremony or taking a vow or saying something out loud is we're giving it physical form which is very important He says, taking refuge in the Buddha. You take refuge in the Buddha not as a savior, not with the feeling that you have found something to make you secure, but as an example, as someone you can emulate. 
He is an example of an ordinary human being who saw through the deceptions of life, both on the ordinary and spiritual levels. And then taking refuge in Dharma. He says, we take refuge in the Dharma as path. In this way, we find that everything in our life situation is a constant process of learning and discovery. We do not regard some things as secular and some things as sacred, but everything is regarded as the truth, or as truth, which is the definition of Dharma. He says, this permits us to relate with our lives fully and properly. So taking refuge in Dharma as path, we develop the sense that it is worthwhile to walk on this earth. Nothing is regarded as just a waste of time. And then finally, taking refuge in Sangha. Having taken refuge in Buddha as an example and Dharma as path, we then take refuge in the Sangha as companionship. That means that we have a lot of friends, fellow refugees, who are confused, who are also confused, and who are working with the same guidelines we are. And when I thought of this, when I read this, I thought, wow, what a relief it is to have companions that are equally confused. We don't have to know it all. In fact, most of us could let go more and more of our knowing mind and relinquish into the truth that we really don't know much. The rest is window dressing. But it can be the Sangha, the power of the Sangha of all of us sitting here is that we're all refugees in this confusion of not knowing. We can become clear, but it doesn't mean that we know. If that was the case, we wouldn't be sitting here. Everybody that walks through this door on some level is acknowledging that we don't have all the answers. That's a wonderful thing to do, to appreciate. He says, everybody is simultaneously struggling with their own discipline. As the members of the Sangha experience a sense of dignity and their sense of taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha begins to evolve, they are able to act as a reminder and to provide feedback for each other. Your friends in the Sangha provide a continual reference point which creates a continual learning process. They act as a mirror reflections to remind you or warn you in living situations. So this this idea of acting as a mirror is actually how we see relationships from a Zen Buddhist point of view. Relationships are, are seen mostly as a way to work on ourselves. So our partners, so to speak, you know, in one way, or our friends, or our different forms and different relationships are mirrors for each other. We, we, we see ourself in the other and we work deeply by having that honest reflection. <clears throat> so he says, so taking refuge in the Sangha means being willing to work with your fellow students, your brothers and sisters in the Dharma, 
while being independent at the same time. Nobody imposes his or her heavy notions on the rest of the Sangha. And then finally, so we no longer regard ourselves as lone wolves who have such a good thing going on on the side (laughs) that we don't have to relate with anybody at all. At the same time, we must not simply go along with the crowd. Either extreme is too secure. The idea is one of constantly opening, giving up completely. There is a lot of need for giving up. A lot of need for giving up. Not just giving up, though. We also have to just give. Not just giving up, but give. So this is, this is uh, just one to, I thought this was an interesting article, to give us a sense of the purpose of becoming a Buddhist, of what does it mean to become a Buddhist? Taking refuge in something greater than the self. So at the end of May, that's the ceremony that's going to be happening here, and so everybody, of course, is welcome to come and witness that or be a part of it. There's no special requirements for that. It's open. So just about out of time so what we're going to do we'll stop here and we'll recite the four bodhisattva vows and then we'll end with three uh, prostrations <laughs>